We'll be in Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to be in verses 20 through 27. While I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before Yahweh, my Mighty One, concerning the holy mountain of my Mighty One, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by the Mighty One. So consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away injustice, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will cut off will be cut off, and will have nothing. The people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. So we're going to begin getting into the prophetic portion of Daniel chapter 9 today. And I've enjoyed going back over verses 1 through 19. That's been a blessing to me. Hopefully it has to you. Refreshing my memory about what's going on here with the 70 years of captivity. Why the Judahites, why the house of Judah was in captivity. And also what's been very encouraging for me is how serious Daniel got with Yahweh when he was praying, fasting, and repenting in humility. He got serious with Yahweh. Yahweh got serious with him. You see that in Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and also in Daniel 10. But I've decided, I've taught those lessons, those two lessons over again, but I've decided to keep the original lessons on Daniel 9, 1 through 19, available on my website. And the two that I preached over the past two weeks, I did not record, and I won't be replacing them with the originals. So if anyone would like to go back over those verses in more detail, Daniel 9, 1 through 19, you can look on ministersnewcovenant.org to lessons number 178 and 179. 178 is called 70 Sabbaths. 179 is called Men Are Not Righteous. Now beginning with this lesson today, I'm going to be making some replacements on my website because I now understand Daniel 9, 20 through 27 differently than I used to understand it about five years ago. That does not mean I'm not saying that I now have perfect understanding. I'm not going to say that. But it does mean that I've grown in my faith, in the faith, and I've grown in my Bible study, and I've come to see these verses in what I would call a more clear and consistent way. Hopefully we all agree that the more mature we become in the faith and the more we study the Bible, changes have to be made in how we view things. So, I've come to see that the 70 weeks of Daniel were fulfilled at the first coming of the Messiah. And they await 
no future fulfillment. I believe that the last of the 70 weeks, that is the 70th week of Daniel, was fulfilled back in the first century A.D. Whereas most prophecy teachers today would insist that we are awaiting a yet future fulfillment of the 70th week of Daniel. Everybody that I'm aware of would agree in prophecy teaching that the first 69 weeks of Daniel's 70-week prophecy has already happened. But there is a disagreement about the 70th week. Most prophetic teachers teach that it will be in the future. Some, limited number, including myself now, believe that it took place or was fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. Now, my main reason for believing this is the teaching of Yeshua at the end of Matthew 23 and throughout Matthew 24. I don't believe that there exists a better interpreter of Holy Scripture than Yeshua the Messiah. He is the greatest Bible teacher that has ever been. And as we saw in studying Matthew 24, 15 through 21, Yeshua speaks of the abomination that causes desolation, and then he references the prophet Daniel. He says, as was spoken by the prophet Daniel. And so we opened up reading Daniel 9, and we read about the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9, verse 27. That's what Yeshua was talking about in Matthew 24, 15. When he said, as spoken of by the prophet Daniel, he's talking about what we now call Daniel 9, verse 27. Probably wasn't called chapter 9, verse 27 back then. There was no chapter and verse subdivisions for the most part in the Hebrew Scriptures. But we call it Daniel 9, 27 today. This is what Yeshua was referring to in Matthew 24. I've come to see that Yeshua's Olivet Discourse, at least up to Matthew 24, verse 34, which we'll eventually get to, has nothing to do with the end of the world, the end of humanity. But it rather has to do with the end of the Old Covenant age and the beginning of the New Covenant age. Yeshua is not dealing with judgment upon the world as we think of it, global, but rather judgment upon first century apostate Judah, the large portion of the southern nation of Israel that rejected their promised Messiah. Remember I've taught that not every single individual Judahite rejected Yeshua, okay? but a large portion of the southern nation rejected him. And as I've quoted over and over, and I'm going to continue to quote because I hope that it sticks with you, that is John 1.11 says, He, speaking of Yeshua, came to His own, but His own people did not receive Him. Now, we could say in a roundabout way that's talking about the people of Israel because Yeshua was an Israelite, but more specifically, when it says He came to His own, it's specifically talking about Judah, the house of Judah, the tribe of Judah and probably also the southern tribe of Benjamin which was located in that territory in Israel. So in the last lessons on Matthew 24, I dealt with properly understanding the abomination of desolation in context and in time, the time that Yeshua places it in. As a matter of fact, I haven't mentioned this, so I'll mention it now. If you're interested in going back over those two lessons, I actually don't only have them on audio, but I also have them on YouTube where you can listen to the sermon and watch the charts as you listen. So you can go back over those on YouTube. See me after service. I'll give you the link if you want to do some more study and and go back over those for a better understanding. So I dealt with Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation, and those two lessons in context and life setting of the time. 
And that's because so many preachers have dismissed the context and the life setting of Matthew chapter 24. They've come up with all types of fanciful interpretations and speculations about what the abomination that causes desolation might be. But when we let go of trying to make up what we want the text to say or what we want it to be and just believe Yeshua, we see that it was the first century Roman armies surrounding the holy city of Jerusalem before and during the siege in A.D. 70 under Titus, who was the son of Vespasian, a Roman ruler of that time. So the armies came into Jerusalem with their standards or their flags bearing the images of Caesar and the eagle. And those armies caused desolation to the city and the people. And eventually they made it into the temple where they did sacrifice to their idolatrous images. They actually worshipped the image of Caesar and the image of the eagle. And that's why they're called the abomination, which is a term in Hebrew that refers to idolatry primarily. They're called the abomination that causes desolation. So the Roman armies were an abomination because of their idolatrous worship, and they caused desolation upon the city, the first century city of Jerusalem. And it was judgment that was actually coming from Yeshua, from heaven. At the right hand of the Father, he was sending judgment. Yeshua used the Roman armies as a spear or a rod in his hand. Very similar to how Yahweh used Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, as a spear or a rod in his hand. And do you know that in the books of the Old Testament, Yahweh calls Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. And that doesn't mean it's because Nebuchadnezzar served Yahweh's commandments. It's referring to Yahweh's use of Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment upon His people Israel. And that's the same thing that's going on from Yeshua through the Roman armies in 70 AD. Now when the Christian Israelites, those who believed in and followed Yeshua as their master, when they first saw the Roman armies surround Jerusalem, as Yeshua said they would, it was their cue to flee to the mountains outside of Judea. Remember Matthew 24, 15 through 16? He says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those which be in Judea flee to the mountains. The parallel in Luke 21 says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then let those which be in Judea flee to the mountains. So he's talking about a localized judgment. And when the Christian Israelites saw this, you know what happened? They fled to the mountains. The first set of Roman armies that surrounded Jerusalem came against Jerusalem under an officer by the name of Cestius Gallus. Josephus talks about this. Eusebius, the father of church history, talks about this. And when the Christians saw that, Yahweh providentially caused Cestius Gallus and his Roman armies to fall back and they decided not to take the city. And people, historians throughout history, have wondered why did they do that? They had the upper hand. Why did they fall back? Those of us that understand the Bible, not just the Old Testament but the New Testament, recognize that was Yahweh's providence. He was giving the Christian Israelites the opportunity to flee as Yeshua had told them to. So Cestius Gallus and the Roman army drew back. The Christian Israelites fleed to the mountains outside of Judea to a city called Pella. And there was not one Christian Israelite in the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., when the Roman armies, the judgment came upon Jerusalem. Not one. Because they obeyed their master. 
in Matthew 24. It's beautiful when you understand it in its historical context. So, I don't want to re-preach those two lessons, but I get excited because very few people understand this even though it's right there in the Bible. I've come to find out that it's easier to get people to believe what the Bible doesn't say than to get them to believe what it does say. Hallelujah. I've come to find that out. And it, it becomes more and more true the more that you study this subject. It's, it's amazing. We'll get more into that here in a second. If the abomination of desolation took place in the first century, then that would have to mean that Daniel's prophecy about the 70th week in Daniel 9 took place in the first century. Now, if you've studied prophecy at any length, I realize that this is not what most TV preachers and radio quote-unquote prophets will tell you, but you need to ask yourself if they are letting the Bible determine what they believe or are they determining what they want to believe first and then running to the Bible to find any ammunition for what they think. That's something you have to ask yourself. Very important. I personally became sick, not just sick in a figurative way, but physically sick. It bothered me that much that I became physically sick when I heard all of these speculations going around again last year. Rest assured, though, it wasn't the first time and it won't be the last time that this happens. Only a matter of time until one of these self-proclaimed prophets that claim that he has a word from God is going to come on the scene and make some kind of prophecy and tell you something that Yeshua says has already taken place in the past. It might have been future to Yeshua, but it's past to us. He's going to tell you that we're yet awaiting something to take place in our future. And it's not going to happen. We had the whole blood moons thing from John Hagee. The mystery of the Shemitah thing from Jonathan Kahn. And it's like we just keep seeing all these self-proclaimed prophets make predictions that never happen. And then when they don't happen, people act like it's no big deal. You can still buy John Hagee's Blood Moon DVD and Jonathan Kahn's Mr. the Shemitah DVD at Lifeway. I like Lifeway. I, I, I enjoy going in there. Tisha says when we go in there, I get locked in. I start reading books. And I have this book thing where if I go into a bookstore, I have a very difficult time not buying a book. And so I have to at least buy one book every time that I go into a bookstore. I try to... To, to gear that back, but um, I got a quite a quite an extensive library now. But I like to read. I don't just like to study the Bible for myself. I like to read what other people think. Doesn't mean I always agree with them, but I like to read. So John Hagee and Jonathan Kahn still have big followings, and you know what? That's a shame because after their failed predictions and their lack of repentance for such failings, people should have shut them off as fast as possible. Deuteronomy 18 says, when a prophet makes a prophecy and it does not come to pass, don't hearken unto what he has to say. Now, it would be another thing if John Hagee came up and said, you know what, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I repent, and I'll even give you your money back if you give me the DVDs and the books. You know, there was one guy, there was one guy that did that. I can't think of the name or the title of the book. Maybe I'll get that for next week. This was in the early 20th century, the early 1900s. There was a guy that wrote a book about the Antichrist and he named a certain individual alive at that time that he was the Antichrist. And when it didn't happen, he felt so bad about it that he told everybody, if you have the book and you give it back to me, I will give you your money back. That's repentance. That's what uh, Zacchaeus did in Luke 19. And Zacchaeus said, I repent, Lord. He said, I, I'll, I'll give my goods to the poor. If I've stolen anything, I'll give back two or threefold. And Yeshua said, whew, Today, salvation has come to your house. You're truly repentant. Hallelujah. 
So, I can speak for myself only. You have to decide for yourself. But I have zero interest, absolute zero interest, in the words that Hagee and Khan speak. I take Yahweh's word very seriously. I take Bible study seriously. And I have no time for charlatans of that brand. So all of this led me to study Matthew 23 and 24. This is why I started doing this. Because I, when I first started on the blood moon thing, I, I got into it and I saw that when they were talking about the blood moons being a lunar eclipse, that's not even what Yahweh's referring to in Joel 2 or Acts chapter 2. And then the mystery of the Shemitah thing. There's no mystery in the Shemitah. The Shemitah is very plain if you just read the Bible. There's no mystery in it. No hidden esoteric meaning. It means what it says. So I got fed up with all that, and I started studying those subjects, and it led me into Matthew 23 and 24, and that's where we've been for a while. And so I wanted to do that diligently, and I want to spark an interest in other people who might be fed up with all this haphazard prognostication as well. And let us learn to love Yahweh's Word, um, even the eschatological or last days, end times studies, as people call them. Matthew 24 has then led me back to the prophet Daniel. That's where we're at today. Daniel 9, 20 through 21 says again, While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before Yahweh my Mighty One, concerning the holy mountain of my Mighty One, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Powerful. Sometime during that beautiful prayer of Daniel's that we went over last week, while he was confessing his sin and the sin of his people, the Israelites, Gabriel showed up. Daniel had seen Gabriel back in Daniel 8, verse 16. Notice Daniel says, the man I had seen in the first vision. And Gabriel had helped Daniel understand a previous vision that he had in Daniel chapter 8. I believe that that vision was about Antiochus Epiphanes in the second, right around there, second century BC. That's another message for another time. Gabriel is here called a man, which is Ish in Hebrew. In the Hebrew language, you have a few different words for man. Adam, Adam is one of them, and Ish is another popular one. I-Y-S-H. Remember in Genesis 2 where Yahweh creates Eve from Adam, deep sleep on Adam. He pulls a curve or a rib out of Adam, however you understand that. He makes Eve um, a helper complementary, comparable to Adam. And the Bible says in English, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You hear the similarity in English, woman, man. Well, in the Hebrew it's the same thing. She shall be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. Same thing. So it's a very common word for man. And here Gabriel is called an Ish. But it's because his former appearance was as a man. But Gabriel is actually an angelic being. He's an angel. He's of the angel family, we should say. Not just a messenger, angelos, but of the angel family. This is the same angel that later appears to both Zechariah and Miriam in Luke chapter 1. Remember, he's standing at the right side of the altar when Zechariah goes in to do his service. That's Gabriel. That's Gabriel. And then remember he comes to the little virgin Miriam in northern Israel, a town called Nazareth, one light town, <laughs> little bitty town Yahweh chose because he, he gives grace to the humble. 
Resist the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That was Gabriel that showed up to Miriam and said, you're blessed and you're highly favored. You've been chosen. It appears that Gabriel is a chief messenger angel of Yahweh because whenever he shows up, it's always to bring an important message from the Almighty. Don't let Gabriel's appearance as a man throw you for a loop. I'm not going to go into much detail on this, but I need to mention it. Don't let his appearance as a man or an ish throw you for a loop because remember in Genesis 1.27 when the Almighty created man in his, singular, his own image and likeness, that before in Genesis 1.26 the Almighty announced his creative activity to his heavenly host that were there. Job 38.7 tells us that the sons of Elohim, that's the angels, were there with Yahweh when he created the earth. They're actually part of the heavens that Yahweh created. They're heavenly beings, spirit beings. That doesn't mean that they don't have a form. In Genesis 1.26, speaking to his angelic host, he says, let us make man in our image. He uses those plural pronouns. But in Genesis 1.27, when Yahweh creates, he goes back to the singular pronouns. Then Elohim created man in his own image. The angels didn't do the creative acts, but he announced the creative acts to the angels. The point that I'm making is this, is that Adam was made in the image and likeness of Almighty Yahweh. And so were the angels because of the let us in Genesis 1.26. So Yahweh, the angels, and Adam share the same image and likeness. As a matter of fact, all men that descend from Adam carry that image and likeness as well. In Genesis 9, when Yahweh is giving instructions to Noah after the flood, he tells Noah, he says, whoever sheds man's blood, By man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of Elohim made he man. Now I'd like to get more into that about Yahweh's image. I believe Yahweh has an image, he has a form, he has a likeness. And I believe that Adam man is made in that image and likeness. That's not my message for today. I'm putting something together on that, so maybe you'll get that in a few months. Who knows? So, Gabriel shows up while Daniel is weary. Remember Daniel's been fasting? So that means he's, he's weary. If you fasted for any amount of time, you know you're not as strong when you fast. He's got sackcloth and ashes on. He's in repentant prayer to Yahweh. He's weak, but Gabriel has come to comfort Daniel. And this part right here gives me goosebumps on my arms. Daniel 9, 22 through 23, he gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, the beginning, as soon as Daniel started praying, An answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by the Mighty One. So consider the message and understand the vision. Now can you imagine this? Daniel's in the middle of of his prayer, and all of a sudden he looks and he sees Gabriel shows up in his room to tell him that at the beginning of his prayer, when Daniel began to pray, an answer came forth from heaven, from Yahweh. And Yahweh sent Gabriel, who I believe to be his chief messenger, angelic being, to give this message to Daniel. And the, and the angel tells Daniel, for you are treasured. You are treasured by the Almighty. To hear the words, you are treasured by the Almighty, from an angel, would probably produce so much emotion in me, I cannot even begin to understand what it would do. But that's what Daniel experienced. And Daniel was a chosen vessel of Yahweh. He was a very special man. I mentioned before that all men from Adam are made in Elohim's image and likeness. But there are certain men, specific individual men in the Bible, 
that Yahweh picked out for special purposes. Daniel was one of them. Moses was one of them. I read the other day in Exodus 33 where the Bible says that Yahweh spoke to Moses face to face like a man speaks with his friend. You know Yahweh has a face? He does. He has back parts. He has a hand. And Yahweh spoke to Moses like I speak to Brother Frankie. As a man speaks to his friend. That's special, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying Yahweh could not speak to me now if he wanted to. But he's never done so and I'll be content if he never does. I still love him. But could you imagine talking with Yahweh directly like Moses? Or hearing an angel tell you, you're treasured by the Almighty, Daniel. These were special chosen vessels of Yahweh. Special, special men. And this does show us, let me give a word of encouragement here in this technical sermon. This does show us how ready and willing Yahweh is to hear the prayers from His people when they are humble and repentant. When you bow your head, you need to have on your mind humility and repentance every time. That's what Daniel prayed. Read his prayer. And if walking through Daniel's prayer in verses 4 through 19 did not make you want to pray like Daniel prayed, then verses 22 through 23 should make you want to pray like Daniel prayed. Because at the beginning of his prayer, a message went forth out. I need to write a song. We talk about dance like David dance. We need to put a verse in there. I will pray like Daniel prayed. (laughs) When the Spirit of Yahweh moves on my heart. David was a prayer too, but I like this prayer of Daniel. When I see how ready Yahweh was to answer Daniel's humble heart, that makes me want to study Daniel's prayer all the more and learn better how to pray like Daniel prayed. It does. So then we have the vision or the message that Gabriel brought to Daniel. And Yahweh chose to give this directly to Daniel. And we're blessed. We're so blessed to be able to read this and study it now. We're so blessed with this now. And we're going to just begin to get into verse 24 today. Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people. This is Gabriel talking to Daniel and your holy city. To bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away injustice to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Seventy weeks are decreed. Seventy weeks are determined. You may translate that. And these seventy weeks are about Daniel's people. That's the people of Israel, specifically the Judahites, in captivity there with Daniel. And the seventy weeks are also about Daniel's holy city. What city might that be? Jerusalem. Daniel's holy city. What we need to understand at this point is the time frame or the time period of these 70 weeks. We might immediately think of 70 weeks of days. Weeks as we normally define them, beginning with the first day of the week and ending with the Sabbath day of the week, days 1 through 7. But I'm going to tell you that this is not what's meant here by the 70 weeks. 70 weeks does not equal 490 days in this prophetic vision. The weeks spoken of by Gabriel here are 70 weeks of years, or 77s of years. The Hebrew word for weeks is Shabuah, probably more literally translated as sevens. In other words, a week of years would equal seven years. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven years. Seventy weeks of years, that is 70 times seven, would equal 490 years. Now, while that might sound odd to some people today, 
Number one, it should not sound odd to the majority of us that know the Old Testament well. Because we know in the Old Testament that there exists a week of years in Leviticus 25. Six years of planting and sowing and one year of Sabbath rest for the land. That's one week of years. And Daniel would have immediately known what Gabriel was talking about. Six years of sowing and reaping followed by one year of rest for the land. And the reason he would have known it is because this is the context of Daniel 9. Now think about this. This is why it was important that I go back over Daniel 9 beginning at verse 1. Because in Daniel 9, 1 through 3, remember that Daniel had been reading the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. And he found that the reason for the 70 year captivity was because of the neglect of what law? The land Sabbath. The land Sabbath. The Israelites had neglected the land Sabbath 70 times which equaled about 490 years plus a little bit counting the Jubilees, but just counting the Sabbath years, 490 years. So the land Sabbath is what was on Daniel's mind from reading the scroll of Jeremiah. And the land Sabbath laws contain weeks, not of days, but weeks of years. So what Gabriel is telling Daniel here is that there are 70 weeks of years, or 490 years, that have been decreed or determined about the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. That's what Daniel 9.24 means beginning at the first part of it. Now I want to point out here that we have seen no reason in Daniel 9 to not view these 490 years as consecutive years. There's no reason to believe that there exists any type of a gap in these years. Just like there is no reason to believe that there existed a gap in the 70 years of captivity. Remember I gave the illustration that, and I'll give it again because I didn't record it. If me and Brother Ron were back there and we got excited because the 69th year was coming to a close and we had been studying Jeremiah with Daniel too, but then the 70th year and the 71st year went by and we still were not out of captivity and me and Ron went to talk to Daniel and Daniel told us, well, we're still going to be in captivity for 70 years, but there's a gap in between the 69th year and the 70th year and you're always not counting the gap me and Brother Ron would probably look puzzled because we would then begin to say, well, that means we've not been in captivity for 70 years. We've been in captivity for 71 years, or ever how long the gap existed. Well, there's no gap in the 70 years of captivity, and that's the context of Daniel 9. Therefore, there's no reason to see a gap in the 70 weeks of years that have been decreed upon Israel and Jerusalem. They did not stay in Babylon for 69 years and then experience a gap of, let's say, five years, and then have the 70th year. That does not make sense, because that would be 75 years, not 70 years. The same holds true for weeks of years here. 70 weeks of years equals 490 consecutive years with no gaps. Now, you might be wondering, why would anyone think that there's a gap in the first place, Brother Matthew, somewhere in the 490 years to begin with? Well, if you're wondering that, that's a good question. Because you're asking a question by looking at the text itself. What does the text say? Well, there are people that insert a gap into these 490 years. But they do so because of a theological presupposition that they come to the text with. I used to do this myself. Because it's pretty much what I was taught growing up. The teachers that I had that 
didn't teach much on prophecy, but when they did, they placed the 70th week of Daniel in the future. And sometimes it's hard to shake what you've been taught. Tradition dies hard. And so I came to the text not even realizing that I had that presuppositional bias in my mind when I read Daniel 9. I automatically assume well, there has to be a gap because the last seven years of the 490 are yet future. That's the Great Tribulation, the seven years. I'm here to tell you today, I do not think that's what the Bible teaches. People who believe that the Great Tribulation mentioned in Matthew 24, 15 through 21 is yet future to our time, they link this 70-week prophecy with Matthew 24. Now, I believe Matthew 24 and and the 70-week prophecy are linked. I do. But they're linked in a way where they found their fulfillment in the first century, not at a time yet future to us. People who do not see it this way believe that the first 69 weeks, or 483 years, took place in the past. But then, there is a postponement or a gap that was initiated which is an indeterminable time period to them. They call that period the church age. In short, the teaching goes something like this. The first 69 weeks of years were fulfilled up until the first coming of Christ. And then because the Judahites rejected Yeshua, Yahweh's plan for Israel was put on hold. And now he does not deal with Israel. He deals with the church. But after the rapture, before the tribulation, he'll start to deal deal with Israel again when the church is caught up to meet him in the air. That's the popular teaching. That's the Tim LaHaye teaching. That's the Thomas Ice teaching, the Left Behind teaching, the one that Kirk Cameron plays on. That's the popular teaching. Matter of fact, Kirk Cameron doesn't believe that anymore, by the way. He actually believes what I'm talking about right now. He was converted off of that, and he's kind of embarrassed that he played in that movie, but he didn't know any better back then. So these people believe that the last seven years of Daniel's vision are yet to be fulfilled still in our future. These seven years are termed by them as the tribulation period. And some people call the last three and a half years of this seven-year period the great tribulation of Matthew 24, 21. Now, the only way to make that belief system work, the only way to make it work, is to read Daniel 9 and separate the 70th week from the first 69 weeks and place a gap of indeterminable time. It's been over 2,000 years now that this gap has existed. And they say it's not counted, but yet it's still 70 weeks of the prophecy. That's a lot more than 70 weeks. So they believe that the first 69 weeks of Daniel's vision to your left on the screen were all consecutive, no gaps. But after the 69th week, a gap is inserted that's been going on for over 2,000 years and we still wait the last seven years of Daniel's vision to take place. I'm saying that the 70th week should come directly after week 69. Just like in the captivity, the 70th year of captivity came directly after year 69 of the captivity. There's no pause, no hold in the count, just like there was no pause or hold on the count in the 70-year captivity. And what is decreed to take place in this time frame of 490 years or 70 weeks? Follow along with this carefully. Listen to this. Verse 24 again. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. And there's six things mentioned. To bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away injustice, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. 
There are six things mentioned in verse 24. And I now believe that all six of these things were accomplished at the first coming of the Messiah. In my previous thinking, I do not believe that I gave Yeshua's first coming the credence or the allegiance, the prominence that it deserved. Instead of letting the Bible interpret the Bible, which is the best thing you can do, and letting the New Testament authors show me how all six of these things were accomplished at Yeshua's first coming, I reasoned in my brain when I read Daniel 9.24 and I said to myself, these cannot be accomplished yet. These cannot be accomplished at the first coming of Christ. They have to be accomplished at the second coming of Christ. That was my own reasoning. I did not read the Bible to come to that conclusion. I did not let the Bible to interpret the Bible to come to that conclusion. I reasoned and figured that the final seven years, the last week, the 70th week of Daniel must yet be in the future, thus the insertion of a gap in between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. But I'm here to say today that if we allow the Bible to interpret the Bible as we've been doing in Matthew 23 and 24, we will see how that Yeshua the Messiah, at His first coming, brought rebellion to an end, put a stop to sin, wiped away injustice. We will see how that everlasting righteousness was brought in, the visions and prophecies were sealed up, and the Most Holy was anointed. Some Bibles say Most Holy Place. The King James is actually more accurate than the HCSB here because the word place is not in the Hebrew. It just reads to anoint the Most Holy. There's a reason for that. And the way we're going to see this is, again, letting the Bible interpret the Bible. Beginning next week, in the next Sabbath lesson, I'm going to intently take a deeper look at what took place at the first coming of Christ. Now, I believe that we still await His second advent, His second physical coming. What did He say in Acts chapter 1? He, he told uh, The angels told the disciples, He said, This Yeshua that you see ascend up shall come back in like manner. Right? 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection of the dead. And all of that, 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the resurrection of the dead, that just like Yahweh raised up Yeshua, He'll also raise us up at His coming. That's a yet future coming of Christ that we await the consummation of the, of the kingdom that I believe has begun now, but will be finalized at that time. But we should not allow our anticipation for that second advent of Christ to overshadow what He, what he has accomplished at His first advent. There was so much that took place in the first century A.D. in that 70th week of Daniel. So much. There was so much that Yeshua did to secure these things mentioned in Daniel 9.24. And in the next lesson, we'll begin looking at those things one by one, comparing the prophecy of Daniel, looking at the New Testament authors and how they interpreted Daniel's prophecy. And any time you read the New Testament and you see a New Testament author interpreting a prophecy a certain way, you can rest assured that that New Testament author's interpretation always, without exception, trumps ours. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I love you. I thank you. I appreciate you. You're great. You're greatly to be praised. I thank you for Daniel the prophet. Father Yahweh, I thank you for a deeper understanding and I pray, Father, that it would not stop. We would continue to get a deeper understanding of, of this text and also Matthew chapter 24, that Olivet Discourse. Father Yahweh, my prayer is that we begin to understand these things so that 
we can help other people that are so infatuated with modern-day prophecy experts, as they call themselves, and and help them understand, look, the Bible, just pick up the Bible. Let's read and study the Bible. What does it have to say about these things? And, uh, Father, that people will be delivered from um, all of these false prophecies going on today. Yahweh, help us to believe your word. Help us to believe your son, what he said there. He's our teacher. He sat there on the Mount of Olives. Help us to believe him and, um, and understand the prophet Daniel rightly. Help me, Yahweh, Father, in my teaching to the people. Father, I thank you so much. I pray all these things through your son, Yeshua the Messiah.